Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! If you believe our independent reporting is essential, please sign up for a monthly gift of $5, $10, or even $20 a month today by visiting democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar by a generous donor. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Just a few minutes ago, I had the great pleasure of speaking to seven Americans who are now free. Free from their imprisonment or detention in Iran, out of Iran, out of prison, and now in Doha, uh, en route back to the United States to be reunited with their loved ones. Five U.S. citizens jailed in Iran have arrived back in the United States after Washington and Tehran agreed to a prisoner swap that involved the unfreezing of $6 billion in Iranian assets. We'll get the latest and talk about the protest movement in Iran a year after the death of Masa Amini. Then we look at how the U.S. helped Pakistan get an IMF bailout with a secret arms deal for Ukraine. Based on secret documents from both the American and Pakistani side, we can report that the U.S. pressured the Pakistanis to begin producing weapons for the Ukraine war effort, and the Pakistanis asked the United States to help them get an IMF loan. That emergency IMF loan was greased in part by the funds from the weapons sales. We'll speak to The Intercept's Ryan Grimm about Pakistan, as well as the shutdown showdown on Capitol Hill. Will House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's standoff with far-right Republican Congress members lead to a shutdown of the federal government? And here in New York, 149 climate protesters were arrested Monday after they shut down the Federal Reserve in a major act of civil disobedience. The reason is that the Fed is the one institution that actually has the power to regulate the banks that are financing oil, gas, and coal projects. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has publicly accused the Indian government of assassinating Hardeep Singh Najjar, a prominent independent Sikh leader and a Canadian citizen. In June, Najjar was shot dead outside a Sikh temple in the city of Surrey, British Columbia, by two masked gunmen who escaped in a waiting car. His murder sparked widespread fear across Canada's large Sikh community. Three years before his killing, India's government designated Najjar a terrorist. On Monday, Trudeau blamed India's government for orchestrating his assassination. Any involvement of a foreign government in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil is an unacceptable violation of our sovereignty. It is contrary to the fundamental rules by which free, open and democratic societies conduct themselves. Mr. Trudeau reportedly raised the assassination with the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi as well as President Biden. 
On Monday, Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie said she had expelled India's top intelligence official in Canada. In response, India expelled a senior Canadian diplomat. India has rejected Trudeau's charges, calling them absurd and politically motivated. Climate scientists are sounding the alarm over record low levels of sea ice off the coast of Antarctica ahead of the start of spring in the southern hemisphere. Sea ice helps to prevent the rapid flow of ice from Antarctica's glaciers into the ocean, which can drive global sea level rise. Satellite data show 930,000 fewer square miles of sea ice extent surrounding Antarctica compared to the September average, far below any previous winter level. Walter Meyer, a researcher at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, told the BBC, quote, it's so far outside anything we've seen, it's almost mind-blowing, he said. Here in New York, police arrested at least 149 climate protesters Monday after they flooded Manhattan's financial district for a day of peaceful protests. Activists are demanding banks stop funding coal, oil and gas projects. More protests are planned for today. In Massachusetts, nine members of the environmental movement Extinction Rebellion were arrested Monday as they peacefully occupied the office of Governor Maura Healey to demand an immediate phase-out of fossil fuels. It's going to be hard. We know that. But how much harder is it going to be the longer we wait? We've already waited too long. The people who are in power now are the ones who need to take action now. Stop passing the buck. Stop pushing it down the line. We only have a few years left before it's too late. We'll have more on this week's historic climate protests later in the broadcast. A Minnesota judge has dismissed criminal charges against three indigenous water protectors who were arrested while protesting at the construction site of Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline in 2021. The three women, Winona LaDuke, Tanya Albid, Dawn Goodwin, were arrested on the banks of the Mississippi River on ceded Anishinaabe land as they sang, danced, and prayed near construction crews. In a landmark opinion delivered Monday, Aitken County Judge Leslie Metzen wrote the women were exercising their rights to free speech and to freely express their spiritual beliefs. The judge dismissed the charges against them in the interests of justice, she said, including, quote, to criminalize their behavior would be the crime. Five U.S. citizens released from prison in Iran Monday have arrived back in the United States following a rare prisoner swap agreement between the United States and Tehran. They were freed after the U.S. unfroze $6 billion of Iran's oil revenue and released five Iranians held in the United States. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to the five Americans after their release. I can tell you that uh, it was uh, for them... Uh, for me, an emotional uh, conversation. Um, it's easy in the work that we do every day sometimes to get uh, lost in the abstractions of foreign policy and uh, relations with other countries and forgetting the human element that's at the heart of everything we do. We'll have more on Iran after headlines. Here in New York, the 78th session of the United Nations General Assembly got underway Monday with an urgent call to action on the environment. 
U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said nations need to work urgently to end the triple planetary crisis of climate change, pollution and biodiversity loss. He also called for a global rescue plan to meet the U.N.'s 17 sustainable development goals, including the elimination of extreme poverty and malnutrition. In our world of plenty, hunger is a shocking stain on humanity and an epic human rights violation. It is an indictment of every one of us that millions of people are starving in this day and age. Heads of state from at least 145 countries are attending the U.N. General Assembly this week. Conspicuously absent are the leaders of four of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, China, Russia, France and the U.K., President Biden's devoting a substantial portion of his speech today to advocate for increased support for Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is attending the General Assembly for the first time since Russia's invasion in early 2022. He will then head to Washington, D.C., where he will meet with President Biden, but will not again give a joint session of Congress address. The New York Times reports a deadly September 6 strike on a crowded marketplace in eastern Ukraine was the result of an errant Ukrainian air defense missile, not a Russian attack, as was widely first reported. The New York Times cited evidence, including missile fragments, satellite imagery, witness accounts and social media posts that strongly suggest the catastrophic strike was the result of a Ukrainian radar guarded guided surface-to-air missile that went astray. At least 15 civilians died, 30 more were injured. Meanwhile, China's foreign minister has begun a four-day trip to Russia. The visit by top diplomat Wang Yi to Moscow comes after he met with White House officials in Malta over the weekend. On Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with China's vice president on the sidelines of the U.N. General Assembly ahead of a possible high-level U.S.-China summit later this fall between Biden and Xi. Mexican journalist Emilio Gutierrez Soto has been granted asylum in the United States after 15 years of fighting for protection. Gutierrez and his son fled Mexico in 2008 after receiving death threats over Gutierrez's reporting on corruption within the Mexican military in the northern state of Chihuahua. They were detained for seven months, eventually released to live in the United States while an asylum appeal was pending. Democracy Now! spoke with Gutierrez by phone in 2017 as he was jailed at a U.S. detention center in El Paso, Texas, awaiting possible deportation. Well, if we are deported, that obviously implies death. Why? Because ICE, under the Department of Homeland Security of the United States, by law, must give a report to the immigration authorities of Mexico and the consulate. And the immigration officials in Mexico have no credibility. It's impossible to trust in them. To the contrary, many of those officials, many personnel at the consulate or immigration service are caught up with organized crime.
In labor news, striking auto workers have expressed skepticism over President Biden's comments siding with the UAW. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain has said he will not endorse Biden's 2024 reelection run as the union, quote, expects actions, not words. Several Democratic members of Congress have joined the picket line in recent days, including House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, who made a trip to Detroit Sunday to express solidarity. Meanwhile, Donald Trump said he plans to skip the second Republican presidential primary debate in California next week to speak in Detroit. Trump has accused the current UAW leadership of failing its members and appealed for the support of auto workers. UAW President Fain has also been critical of Trump. This all comes as the strike of some 12,700 auto workers has entered a fifth day. This is UAW member Stu Jackson speaking from a picket line in Wayne, Michigan. We don't want to wait four years to get it. We need it now. We need it now. You know, and that's the way they've been doing us. You know, these bonus checks, we don't need bonus checks. We need cost of living allowance. You know, uh, we need to keep up with what's going on in the economy. And more than 60 members of Australia's parliament from across the political spectrum have written an open letter urging President Biden to halt his efforts to prosecute Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder who's an Australian citizen, faces espionage and hacking charges that could see him sentenced to up to 175 years in prison for publishing classified U.S. military and diplomatic cables, including evidence of war crimes. Assange has been held in London's infamous Belmarsh prison since 2019, awaiting possible extradition to the United States. In their open letter, the Australian lawmakers call on the U.S. to abandon its prosecution of Assange, writing, quote, it serves no purpose, it is unjust, and we say clearly, as friends should always be honest with friends, that the prolonged pursuit of Mr. Assange wears away at the substantial foundation of regard and respect that Australians have for the justice system of the United States of America, unquote. The letter appears as an ad in The Washington Post. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Five Americans released by Iran as part of a prisoner swap have arrived back in the United States. They were released Monday, then flown to Qatar, which helped broker the deal in which the United States agreed to drop charges against five Iranians in the United States. In addition, the Biden administration cleared the way for Iran to access $6 billion of its own money that had been frozen in a bank in South Korea. As part of the deal, the money will only be available to Iran to purchase food, medicine, and other non-sanctionable items. Three of the prisoners released by Iran have been identified publicly. Siamak Namazi, who's been detained since 2015, Murad Tabaz, an environmentalist jailed since 2018, and Imad Shargi, who was also arrested in 2018. The names of the other two have not been publicly released. The five prisoners flew on Monday from Tehran to Qatar. They were joined by two other Americans who'd been barred from leaving Iran. Secretary of State Tony Blinken praised the deal. 
Just a few minutes ago, I had the great pleasure of speaking to seven Americans who are now free, free from their imprisonment or detention in Iran, out of Iran, out of prison, and now in Doha, uh, en route back to the United States to be reunited with their loved ones. Uh, five of the seven, of course, had been unjustly detained, imprisoned in Iran, some for years. Uh, two others had been prevented from leaving Iran. Um, I spoke to them after they landed in Doha. Um, I can tell you that uh, it was uh, for them, uh, for me, an emotional uh, conversation. Um, it's easy in the work that we do every day sometimes to get uh, lost in the abstractions of foreign policy and uh, relations with other countries and forgetting the human element that's at the heart of everything we do. But today, their freedom, the freedom of these Americans for so long unjustly imprisoned and detained in Iran, means some pretty basic things. It means that husbands and wives, fathers and children, grandparents, can hug each other again, can see each other again, can be with each other again. So it's a day that I'm grateful for. Of the five Iranians who had their charges dropped, two have asked to stay in the United States. Another two have returned to Iran, and the fifth is going to an undisclosed country to be with family. Some Republican politicians in the United States have criticized the deal. Texas Congressmember Tom Cotton described the deal as, quote, shameful and accused the Biden administration of, quote, paying ransom to the world's worst state sponsor of terrorism. That's Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. But family members of the detained Iranian-Americans praised the Biden administration's efforts. In a statement, Ahmad Shargi's sister, Neda, said, quote, This is my brother, not an abstract policy. We are talking about human lives. There's nothing partisan about saving the lives of innocent Americans. And today should be a moment of American unity as we welcome them home. The prisoner swap also came as the Biden administration announced new sanctions on Iran's former president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and Iran's Ministry of Intelligence for their involvement in what the Biden administration described as, quote, wrongful detentions. The prisoner swap took place two days after the death of 22-year-old Masamini, who died in police custody September 16th. 2022, just over a year, a year ago, after she was arrested by Iran's so-called morality police, accused of not wearing her hijab properly. Her death sparked months of protests in Iran, a severe crackdown by Iranian authorities. Rights groups estimate 500 people were killed, more than 18,000 arrested over the past year. Ahead of the anniversary, Iranian police detained Masamini's father, warned him against commemorating his daughter's death. To talk more about the U.S.-Iran prisoner swap and U.S.-Iran relations, we're joined by Nagar Murtaz. She is an Iranian-American journalist, host of the Iran podcast, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy. Welcome back to Democracy Now! Nagar. Why don't you start off by talking about the significance of this trade, of the deal that was made, and then we'll talk about the protests. 
Good morning, Amy. Let me just make a very quick personal note. This is also very emotional for many of us Iranian-Americans. As an Iranian-American journalist living in exile who can't travel back to my homeland, specifically because of this issue. This could be me or family members. I actually know one of these prisoners, former prisoners personally. So this coming back is just a very emotional scene for, for most Iranian Americans to watch. Um, as far as the policy, I think this, this is just an example of successful diplomacy between two adversaries, two rivals. It was a long process, very complex process. Iranian and American diplomats didn't even meet in person for these negotiations, for this complex agreement. Um, there was very heavy mediation involved by uh, trusted partners on both sides, mainly the state of Qatar where diplomats would literally shuttle between hotels where Iranians and American diplomats were staying and essentially brought this home and um, were able to choreograph that whole process of the unfreezing of Iranian assets and also the freeing of the five each prisoners on both sides. And Nagar, what do you make of the timing of the, of this the, of this release coming on the eve of the United Nations General Assembly uh, meeting, just as President Raisi of uh, uh, Iran comes to New York? What do you make of that? Well, I'm not exactly sure how much of this was timed, although it is a pattern that when domestic issues and problems, or I would say repression. Um, and, and dissent increases. Iran has been trying to do more outreach and more sort of external uh, gains or diplomatic achievements. And this could be one of those. But it's also, let's not remember, this was about a year of intense negotiations, about eight rounds of those uh, indirect negotiations that I talked about. And it was very much reliant on a financial transaction, this big sum of money, $6 billion dollars, that was sitting in South Korea for years, had to be transferred to Europe, be converted, and then go into, um, be transferred to a bank in Qatar where the Qatari government will have oversight. So I guess both sides wanted this to be done as soon as possible. And that money was, what we got reporting was that it was transferred final, uh, finally last week. And so these were the steps that came right after it. But I wouldn't be surprised if the Iranians were also trying to time it with the arrival of the president, the Iranian president, into the U.S. in New York for the General Assembly. And of course, uh, this six billion dollars, which some Republicans in the United States are calling a ransom, is actually Iranian money uh, that was uh, frozen by uh, uh, by United States sanctions. Could you talk about the sanctions and its impact uh, on uh, the Iranian economy and on the people of Iran? Sure. Yes, it's essentially ransom paid out of their own pockets. Someone was comparing this to uh, a person going to the bank and trying to taking a hostage and asking to withdraw money out of their own account, essentially. So this was money at, that was frozen by South Korea oil revenue at the request of the U.S. or essentially in fear of U.S. sanctions or punishment. And the U.S., basically green-lighted to South Korea or allowed them to unfreeze this money. But the law as far as sanctions hasn't changed. This is an existing humanitarian exemption that has existed under Republican and Democratic administrations 
when it comes to sanctions law that uh, certain purchases, very limited purchases, are allowed even for a country that's heavily sanctioned. What are those purchases? Food, medicine, and limited medical supplies. So what's happened is basically a logistical financial transaction where this money was moved from South Korea, converted from Korean won into euros, and now it will be sitting in banks in Qatar with direct oversight by the Qatari government who will be responsible for paying for the transaction. So the Qataris will not be paying the Iranians, they will be basically paying the suppliers for these humanitarian transactions and with some oversight also from the U.S. as Qatar is a trusted partner by both sides. So I think this argument is essentially against any humanitarian exemptions to sanctions, which existed as far as uh, as long as sanctions existed and it gets to the core of um, of of the essentially that that exemption which is allowing food medicine and medical supplies no matter what under under any sanction uh, conditions uh, Nagar can you tell us who the five Iranian Americans are or why don't we know two of those people where we do not see their pictures and also who the Iranians are who two are asking to stay here two um, are went to Iran and another to a third country what were they charged with? They weren't all jailed here, were they? No. So, so I'll tell you briefly. On the Iranian side, two have asked and their families had asked to remain anonymous. It's just the personal decision of the families. It's sort of that balance. Do you go all out with the media attention to bring more pressure and, and increase the chance of your loved one being released? Or do you keep quiet and try to resolve this with quiet diplomacy? You know, there's two theories, two, uh, two ways of doing this. And these two families decided to keep it quiet and they assumed it would increase the chances of them being released. And I think they still uh, try to remain private and, and, not, and uh, not have the names out. So it was as, as, as a personal decision of the detainees and their families. The other three, Siamak Namazi, Emad Shari, and Murat Tahbaz, Iranian-American, Murat Tahbaz actually British as well as American, so triple nationality. Uh, Siamak Namazi, an Iranian-American businessman, had been held the longest since 2016 in Iran. He's essentially, as he says, has been left behind or forgotten by multiple administrations over the years of his detention. Emad Shari, also a businessman from this area, the D.C. area, um, and Murat Tahbaz is an environmentalist, Iranian-American environmentalist from the Connecticut area. On the U.S. side, the U.S. detention or the Iranian nationals on the U.S. side, it was all related to sanctions violations. So very specific category, not violent crime, not anything domestic, but essentially federally um, uh, enforced sanctions and exports violations um, that these Iranian nationals were charged with that essentially the government dropped the charges. But some of them were already residents of the United States. One was a resident of Canada. So essentially, I think they're going back. Again, it's a personal decision. They're going back to where their lives and families were, or um, that decision is just a personal decision. And one or two have decided to go back to Iran. So it's it's been very specific categories. And this was also similar to what happened under the prisoner swap um, during the Obama administration. Nagar, I know you have to go, but I wanted to ask you about this anniversary of the killing of Masa Amini and her father being arrested, the state of the protest movement in Iran right now as uh, the president of Iran addresses the U.N. General Assembly. 
Sure, I have a little bit of time. Um, the anniversary was essentially prepared with a very heavy security presence, pressure on families, pressure on activists, universities, anyone who could potentially show any leadership in bringing about uh, a mass movement against a state. The government essentially tried to prevent that with uh, with lots of uh, preemptive pressure. Um, but the dissent continues. The grievances are still there. They haven't been addressed, economic, political, and cultural. And I think what we saw over the past year after the death in custody of Masa Amini was nothing short of a mass movement and also essentially a cultural revolution. Women and girls said enough is enough. You can't kill a woman for how she's dressed, which is one reading of the religious attire. And they started defying the mandatory hijab in ways that we haven't seen before. The courage, the bravery, putting their lives and their bodies on the line and saying, I want autonomy, bodily autonomy. Um, and um, I'm going to start dressing the way I want. Young girls, school girls. So the bravery and the courage has been amazing to watch, and it's been constant, ongoing over the past year and still continues. But as far as mass protests, like the way we saw last year, the government and security forces have tried very hard um, to prevent that. And have there been any concessions uh, by the government uh, in the past year uh, in terms of the rights of women in Iran? I don't think we can call them concessions, but women have been able to push the government back essentially by force, by saying, I refuse. I, I am risking my life. I'm risking arrest. I'm risking my career, my job. Women have been fired. Businesses have been closed. They get fined. They get tickets if they drive without the headscarf. But nevertheless, they continue. And I think the leap or this giant push that they made over the past year would eventually happen maybe in the next decade or two, but it just accelerated it. The killing or death in custody of Massa accelerated it uh, with women essentially channeling this anger into more resistance and more fight. And women in Iran on the ground tell me they, that there's, there's sort of an unspoken sisterhood, a solidarity that when they see each other defying the law and not wearing the hijab, they get even more courage, more bravery and um, feel like they're not alone. And now there's just so many of them. The Iranian public, um, the way it looks has been very, very uh, different. It's dramatically changed since it was last year. And I don't think the government can push it back to where it was before the killing of Masa Amini. Negar Martazavi, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Iranian-American journalist, host of the Iran podcast, senior fellow at the Center for International Policy, speaking to us from D.C. Next I up, we go to Ryan Grimm on how the U.S. helped Pakistan get an IMF bailout with a secret arms deal for Ukraine. And we'll talk about, here in Washington, D.C., the shutdown showdown as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces off against his own right-wing Republican lawmakers. Stay with us. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبالگرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی از رو درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سگهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای 
گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای برای means because of by the Iranian singer Shervin Hajipur. It became the uh, unofficial anthem of the Iran protests last year. The song's lyrics were compiled from messages Iranians posted online about why they were protesting. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As President Biden and other world leaders gather in New York for the United Nations General Assembly, we turn to a major new investigation by The Intercept about how the Biden administration helped Pakistan get a controversial new IMF bailout after Pakistan agreed to secretly sell arms to the United States for the war in Ukraine. According to The Intercept, the secret arms deal was worth about $900 million, money which Pakistan then used to help shore up its financial position in the eyes of the International Monetary Fund. The Intercept reports the deal was discussed at a meeting in Washington in May between Assistant Secretary of State Donald Liu and the Pakistani ambassador to the U.S., Masood Khan. Pakistan's stance on the war in Ukraine has shifted notably since Russia's invasion and the ouster of Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was removed from office in April 2022. Khan is now imprisoned in Pakistan. In August, The Intercept revealed the existence of a classified Pakistani cable that outlined how the U.S. State Department had encouraged the Pakistani government to remove Khan from office in March 2022, just weeks after Russia had invaded Ukraine. The document stated the U.S. objected to Khan's neutral stance on the war. According to the memo, one State Department official warned Pakistan's ambassador to the United States that, quote, all will be forgiven in Washington if Khan is removed. Since Imran Khan was removed from office, Pakistan has shifted to support the U.S. and Ukraine on the war. At the same time, Pakistan has cracked down on supporters of Imran Khan, and elections have been postponed indefinitely. Meanwhile, the strict conditions of the IMF bailout have sparked mass protest in Pakistan. We're joined now by Ryan Grimm, the Intercept's Washington bureau chief. His latest piece, co-written with Murtaza Hussein, is headlined, U.S. helped Pakistan get IMF bailout with secret arms deal for Ukraine, leaked documents show. So elaborate on this, Ryan Grimm. Talk about the significance of the arms deal and Pakistan's changing position on the Ukraine war. In fact, it happened to be that Imran Khan was visiting with Russia, President Putin the day Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. On top of uh, Khan's neutrality, because you know Imran Khan had tried to play a balancing role between the United States, Russia, and China generally. On, on top of that, he happened coincidentally to be in Russia on the day of the invasion for a, a long-planned bilateral agreement and that absolutely, you know, infuriated Washington. Uh, you, you know, several weeks later is when you had that critical meeting where Assistant Secretary Don Liu uh, conveyed Washington's impression, which was that if Khan stays in power, uh, Pakistan will be isolated from the EU and from the United States. But if Khan is pushed out of power, then all will be forgiven, because as, as Liu put it, Washington understood that Imran Khan's policy was his own policy and not the policy of Pakistan. In other words, that if somebody new were put in place, the, the hope was 
that Pakistan would then become a key ally again of the United States in you know in its geopolitical struggle generally, but very specifically with with Ukraine and Russia. What's key to understand is that the United States doesn't actually have much of an industrial base when it comes to producing the ammunition, munitions, artillery shells, the kind of low-grade weapons that you need for the kind of grinding war that's going on between Ukraine and Russia. If you want a you know, $100 million F-35 that they're going to lose when it crashes, then the United States is able to produce those because entire lobbying infrastructures and, and executive suites and entire you know cities outside of Washington, uh, gleaming cities and skyscrapers can be built up around those. But just producing artillery shells, you know, that that's something that the U.S. has kind of outsourced to countries like Pakistan in the past. And so Ukraine was very quickly running low. So what our reporting found is that by by August of 2022, so just a few months after Khan was ousted, according to the documents that we reviewed, Pakistan was producing significant amounts of artillery uh, that were being paid for uh, by the United States, shipped to Ukraine and, and in taking part in the war over there. As the economy continued to collapse, Pakistan needed an emergency IMF loan, and the United States agreed to confidentially tell the IMF about the weapons program and about the money that Pakistan was getting from the weapons program to kind of bridge the financing gap that was necessary. Otherwise, there would have been a, a, a complete uh, economic meltdown in, in Pakistan. And, and Ryan, in terms of the, the, the use of the IMS like, like this as a political instrument, uh, essentially, uh, the, the, what, what was the impact of the, pack, the, the package and the reforms, so-called reforms that the IMF right. always requires of countries in Pakistan, on top of the political convulsion that has been resulted from the removal of the prime minister. Right. As, as you know, these reforms always you know, come at a price to regular people in the country, these kinds of structural adjustments that are assi- insisted on uh, by the IMF. And because of that, the IMF always insists that it negotiate with an elected government that has a mandate uh, from the people. Now, mandate can be can be broadly defined because often it's you know very directly going in the face of what the will of the of the people of that particular country is. But at least they want an elected government in place that they can kind of pin these reforms on. They ended up having to raise uh, get energy prices by nearly fifty percent to get this IMF loan, and so the government that followed Imran Khan was able to strike that deal before it turned over to a caretaker government. The, the, the goal of the and the only mandate of a caretaker government is to hold elections. But because this massive IMF deal was in place, Pakistan can now kind of run on cruise control for a while. And so that is that is the financing that has then allowed them to postpone the elections and not just postpone the elections, but deepen this very brutal crackdown. Uh, with you know thousands of supporters of Imran Khan getting round up, rounded up Imran Khan himself uh, in in prison, Imran Khan's deputies in prison, uh, this dystopian censorship where Pakistani media outlets are told that they're not even by the military that they're not even allowed to mention Imran Khan, which creates these bizarre situations where if he's in a photograph, they'll put kind of like a, a Chiron or some image over him to, to not run afoul of this bizarre blanket uh, censorship regime uh, that's underway. And so that has all been enabled uh, by this IMF loan, which enabled then the, the postponing of the elections. 
And, and since Khan was has was removed from power, what has been Pakistan's position on the war in Ukraine? Interestingly, uh, the the Foreign Office yesterday, in response to our story, flat out denied uh, that they're providing any weapons uh, for the for the war in Ukraine. Uh, no, nobody believes that. Uh, we're not we're not the first to kind of report on this. We're the first to confirm it uh, with documents. But there has been. There have been there's been plenty of video and photographic evidence of munitions, uh, you know, made in in Pakistan that are being used, you know, in in the Ukraine war. Uh, so publicly, they're still proclaiming some sort of neutrality. But you have had comments from the military leadership that have been you know, hostile towards you know, Russian invasion and have kind of satisfied the United States requirement. And the fact that they're operating this, you know. Uh, multi-hundred million dollar, oh, it's, it's over a billion by now because the, uh, you know our our data stopped last summer. Uh, the, the the production of the munitions for the war effort makes it makes it clear that after Khan was removed, Pakistan became a reliable ally of the United States in in this war. Uh, before we move on to the showdown on Capitol Hill around the government shutdown, I want to ask you about the person you interviewed, Arif Rafiq, Ryan, uh, who said Pakistani democracy may ultimately be a casualty of Ukraine's counteroffensive. So why would the U.S. and its allies go to such lengths for Pakistan's allegiance to uh, uh, on Ukraine? Yeah, as 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 you've covered on this show for so long, when the United States has a primary foreign policy objective, uh, in particular uh, when it's a war, everything else falls away, and that's what you're seeing in in Pakistan now. And for Pakistanis, the irony is is clearly not lost that the United States and and is bringing together kind of the 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 world to stand up for the defense of democracy and sovereignty in Ukraine. Meanwhile, you know, quite deliberately and openly sacrificing uh, democracy in a in a country of 230 million people uh, in in Pakistan, uh, that 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 democracy is being asked, you know, to sacrifice itself for the one in Ukraine, and so uh, it's also caught up in all the the geopolitics of Pakistan's you know shifting relationships with Russia, with China, and with the Gulf countries which obviously don't even pretend uh, to be you know, champions of democracy. So now pretty much everyone involved with Pakistan now is no longer uh, you know, pushing for any defense of civil society or human rights uh, with, within the borders, though uh, perhaps uh, the, the protests and, and the pressure uh, that's coming internally from Pakistan might force some sort of reckoning in the State Department as their rhetoric gets too far removed from the reality. I wanted to turn now, Ryan Grimm, uh, to Capitol Hill, to the showdown over the potential shutdown of the federal government as House Speaker Kevin McCarthy battles far-right lawmakers—not that he wasn't considered far-right before, but from within his own party. This is McCarthy speaking to Reporters Monday. The one thing I'll tell everybody, um, I've never seen anybody win a shutdown. You only put the power in the hands of the administration. If you want to secure the border, pass homeland. If you want to make uh, America strong and secure, you pass the DOD appropriations bill. If you're not willing to pass appropriation bills, and you're not willing to pass a continuing resolution to allow you to pass the rest of appropriation bills, and you don't want an omnibus, I don't quite know what you want. 
So that's House Speaker McCarthy sounding uh, not as heated as we heard over the weekend, the F-bombs flying um, between people like um, uh, Florida Congressmember Gates, who went to the floor and threatened to remove the House Speaker. Explain everything that's taking place. And do you see this showdown happening? It could happen, what, within 11 days? That's right. I, I do see it happening at this point. And it's it's hard to really describe kind of how idiotic this whole situation is. And McCarthy did a fairly good job right there. What he, and he was saying at the end, I don't know what they want, because there are only a couple different ways to keep the government open. You know, you can either pass a, a clean CR, which means the way that the government is funded today is the way that the government will be funded into the future until a certain date. You can pass a an amended CR, which would say, we're going to continue funding the government, but we want these particular changes. And the House Freedom Caucus has put forward a, a CR like that, that includes a bunch of draconian kind of immigration and, and wokeness rules that won't go anywhere in the Senate and won't go anywhere in the White House. But even that has opposition from within the Freedom Caucus. So they can't pass that either. Then you can pass individual appropriations bills, kind of the way that Congress was designed to operate 200 plus years ago. When it was built, every committee passes its funding bill. You pass those bills. Senate passes its bills. The president signs them. Done. The government is funded. They can't even agree to do a defense bill. They're, that's supposed to come to the floor today. It might not even pass. They can't agree, as McCarthy said, to do a Homeland Security funding bill. Th there are 10 other agencies and departments that would need to be funded as well. They can't do that in the next 11 days. They probably couldn't do that over the next year if you gave them that much time. So those are the three options. And the Freedom Caucus is standing in the way of all three of those options. And so notice that I haven't even mentioned Democrats at this point. So this is fully, you know, completely in the hands of caucus, which is unable to even get its own members to agree on something, which is then going to walk them off the cliff of a government shutdown in a way that doesn't even give them a fig leaf of uh, 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 to cover the fact that they didn't do anything, at least with the debt ceiling crisis. If you remember, they passed some, you know, completely untenable legislation through the House. So at least they said, look, we did our part. We lifted the debt ceiling. But, it, you know, it came with all these things that obviously Biden's never going to sign. But at least they put it through the House of Representatives. It looks like this time they might not even be able to do that. And if McCarthy then relies on Democrats to try to get the keep the government open, they're saying, well, then we're going to throw McCarthy out of the speakership, then they have the problem of who are they going to replace him with? You know, they, they have no idea because they don't have a majority. They don't have 218 votes for a new speaker. So they don't like the way things are going. They have no idea what to do instead. And so we're just going to get uh, a shut. It looks like we're just going to get a shutdown until there's enough pressure on them that they just capitulate again. And it's ironic. Ryan yeah. Ryan, what is the, these continuing battles that last several years over government shutdowns? What does this say about the increasing contradictions and the ruling circles in the in in a U.S. society that they can't agree among themselves as to uh, spending bills? I feel like, and I'm still kind of thinking through this myself. I'm curious for your guys' take. You know, back back when Washington was really the subject of interest group competition. You know, uh, labor, environmentalists, ma major corporations, grassroots organizations like, say, the NRA, uh, you, you fought over 
you fought over legislation and you fought over outcomes because people were jockeying for actual power. But I think what's developed now is that you have a lot of the kind of quote unquote interest groups who are interested in Washington are like, for instance, YouTubers like Steve Bannon, who has a gigantic podcast called The War Room, which has millions of people who are kind of worked up about what's going on in the House of Representatives. And what they want to see is a fight. They want to see a show. And Matt Gates has said as much that they don't necessarily expect Matt Gates to win every fight, but they expect him to fight. And so they want the theater of it. You know, they, they want to see that they sent somebody to Washington who is fighting for them. What they're fighting for, whether they win, whether, whether their situation actually gets worse as a result, is secondary to the kind of emotional release that people want from seeing a clash unfold in Washington. You've seen some of this on the left as well, that they, they just want to they just want to see a fight. They just want to know that they're kind of represented in in Washington, even if it's hopeless. You know, even if they don't have they won't even like put forward an idea of how they're going to win this showdown. So I, I feel like that that's sort of what's reflected in what we're seeing here, because otherwise you can't make any sense of it from a strategic or tactical sense if you are thinking about outcomes or substance or results that you want from this. Ryan, we only have a minute. We last had you on discussing prosecutors indicting President Biden's son Hunter on felony charges of illegally possessing a handgun and making false statements in order to get the gun in 2018. Well, on Monday, Hunter Biden filed a federal lawsuit against the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, for allegedly violating his privacy, saying two of its investigators divulged confidential tax information when they testified before Congress. And last week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Uh, can you talk about these developments? It's an interesting case that Hunter has filed. Now, the whistleblowers, you know, when they when they initially came forward to Congress, they said that, you know, as good IRS agents, you know, what we're revealing does not violate any particular, you know, privacy rights of of any particular taxpayers because, you know, the IRS does, you know, not only have a legal mandate around that, but they have a cultural one, too, that the people within the IRS are very cautious about revealing private information. But certainly this tax fight has spilled out into the press. So it would certainly be ironic if uh, if the IRS ended up having to pay uh, Hunter Biden for, uh, you know, and it depends on, you know, what jury he gets. Maybe this is also some some leverage that his lawyers are trying to get uh, against the attorneys because there's still the unfolding uh, Farrah case, which is the, you know, was was Hunter Biden illegally acting as a foreign agent without without disclosing or without registering. That's the that's that fight is the reason that the entire case. Uh, plea deal broke down in the first place. Uh, well, very interesting to see his very powerful lawyer, Abby Lowell, who also uh, represented Steve mm. Bannon. And the Kushners. Uh, and yes. the Kushners. Um, Ryan Grimm, I want to thank you so much for being with us, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. We'll link to your piece that you wrote with Murtaza Hussein, headlined, U.S. helped Pakistan get IMF bailout with secret arms deal for Ukraine, leaked documents reveal. Uh, Ryan's Substack newsletter is bad news. Next up, we speak with one of the 149 climate protesters arrested Monday after they shut down the Federal Reserve here in New York, calling for an end to fossil fuel investments. Stay with us. Bye. 
Arusha Tav. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As the U.N. General Assembly brings world leaders to New York this week, some will attend the first-ever Climate Ambition Summit Wednesday, focused on efforts to accelerate um, and address the climate—to uh, address the climate crisis. President Biden speaks today at the General Assembly, but will not attend the climate summit. This comes after an estimated 75,000 people marched to the United Nations Sunday to demand Biden end fossil fuels. On Monday, activists escalated calls for climate action. With one of the largest acts of civil disobedience in a decade, they gathered in Zuccotti Park, the former site of Occupy Wall Street, then surrounded the Federal Reserve Bank, blockading the entrances as they called for an end to the financing of fossil fuel projects. Organizers say 149 were arrested, including climate defiance organizer Riley Hout. This comes as climate protests targeted Citibank and AIG last week for funding fossil fuel projects and today focus on Bank of America, which the Rainforest Action Network says has poured $279 billion into the fossil fuel industry since the 2015 Paris Agreement to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions. For more, we're joined by Renato Pumarol, organizer with Climate Defenders, one of the groups that's been planning this week's climate change direct action in New York, and Lise Nascimento, the campaign director at New York Communities for change. She was arrested during the protest Monday at the Federal Reserve. We welcome you both. Alise, let's start with you. Talk about why you got arrested yesterday. Talk about the Federal Reserve here in New York. Um, thank you, Amy. First, thank you so much for having me. Um, I, you know, unlike many of my colleagues who uh, blocked the doors yesterday to the Federal Reserve and put their bodies on the line, I was actually not planning to be arrested. Um, I simply grabbed a bullhorn and I contextualized where we were as a number of our colleagues were getting arrested. And I called out the Fed for its responsibility to regulate climate risk as financial risk, and also the responsibility of our elected officials, especially Democrats and financial regulators, and their utter failure uh, in this time of crisis. And the police told me that I could not use a bullhorn, in spite of the fact that we were all using bullhorns, and that if I continued on speaking out, that they would arrest me. And, uh, and I continued on speaking out because it's important. And then they proceeded to arrest me. So it came as a surprise. But at the same time, uh, it's what, you know, we're really trying to bring the urgency of the crisis to the folks who are responsible for it. And the Fed is really failing in its role, not just its role, but really its duty and responsibility to make sure that banks are um, no longer financing new fossil fuel infrastructure. I'd like to bring Renata Pumarol into the conversation. Renata, you, uh, you were participated in the protest. The recent uh, protests have targeted financial institutions like Citibank and BlackRock. Uh, why them? Well, um, BlackRock and, and Citibank are one of the biggest funders of fossil fuels. Citibank is actually the second largest 
fossil fuel financier in the world and has poured over $333 billion um, into fossil fuels um, and therefore are complicit in the climate chaos that we are experiencing. Uh, your audience know that, you know, climate chaos is not uh, in some distant future. We are facing unprecedented heat waves uh, and floods and fires that have killed uh, tens of thousands of people. And it will only get worse if we do not stop the fossil fuel industry. And the only way to stop the fossil fuel industry is to stop the financing of, uh, of fossil fuels. And that's why this week, uh, hundreds of activists uh, targeted um, the financiers of fossil fuels like BlackRock, like KKR um, and Citibank um, and today Bank of America. These are the people who are funding the pipelines that are destroying indigenous communities and threatening our water. Um, they are the ones who are funding petrochemical facilities in black and brown communities and causing high rates of cancer and of asthma. And they are ultimately responsible uh, for the for for climate change and climate chaos that is is threatening our our existence and are threatening, you know, uh, you know, a livable future. And could you talk about how your own uh, relatives in northeast Brazil are being impacted by the, the climate catastrophe? So actually, uh, this is uh, I think this question is meant for Alisi, uh, who is from Brazil, um, oh, I'm from sorry. Dominican yes. Republic. No oh, I'm worries. Sorry. I'm from the Dominican Republic, though. Um, and, you know, as you know, from the Caribbean, Caribbean islands are, are, are highly threatened by climate change. Uh, we have we have experienced like, you know, uh, stronger hurricanes, um, you know, in the case of Puerto Rico, which was devastated by Hurricane Maria. And we are we are also facing unprecedented heat waves, too. Um, and I'll take it back to Alisi to talk about uh, Brazil and how her country has been affected. Alice, yeah. if you could respond in Brazil. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, as many of you know, of course, Brazil is really at the forefront uh, in the battle to, to save our planet with having the Amazon rainforest uh, there and indigenous communities really not only fighting for their lives, but fighting for the future of our planet in uh, protecting the Amazon, since they're all, you know, technically considered protected lands under Brazil's constitution. So that's really the only thing that's maintaining that uh, underdeveloped and not uh, and decreasing the levels of deforestation now that Lula has become president. But for me personally, I'm from the northeast of Brazil, Salvador Bahia. Uh, it's very right, right by the equator. Um, uh, it's a it's a city that's right by the beach. And increasingly, you know, in the win in the winters, there's rainy season. And it always rains, but now it's just become uh, there's so many floods. There's uh, my father's house recently; his roof completely collapsed. And uh, and this is really the impacts of climate change. It's something that we're used to seeing rain in Brazil, but not to this degree. And of course, uh, it impacts everyone, but particularly the folks who are on the front lines who are poor and don't necessarily have the means to rebuild their house or to have shelter. Uh, finally, um, Renata, this comes after 75,000 people marched. The focus was President Biden, Biden and fossil fuels, the banner across the stage. Why President Biden? Uh, we have 20 seconds. Well, uh, Biden, uh, you know, of course, is the president of the United States, the most powerful, 
powerful country, is also the biggest producer of oil and gas. And Biden can stop uh, new fossil fuel projects right now and has chosen not to do so and has chosen actually even not to attend uh, the climate summit well, and commit himself. We're to going to leave it there, um, but we're going to continue to cover the climate actions across the week. Renato Pumarol and Elise Nascimento. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Thanks for joining us.